Well, good morning. If you've got your Bible with you, go with me to the book of Isaiah. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9 together this morning. And if you do not have a Bible with you, but you would like to follow along with us, there are Bibles that are in the chair racks in front of you. And Isaiah 9 is on page 573 of the Bibles that are in the chair racks uh, there in front of you. We've been talking about uh, darkness a lot this morning as we have been worshiping together. And the prophet Isaiah lived during some very dark days himself. The unity of the kingdom of which he had been part, the nation of which he had been part, had been destroyed many years earlier. After the reign of David, the, the kingdom had been split into northern and southern kingdoms. And these northern and southern kingdoms had not just split and maintained their separate identities, but they were actually at odds with each other. So much so that the, the, the once unified nation of Israel was now enduring civil war with the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom against each other. Isaiah prophesied during the reign of several kings, one of whom was King Ahaz. And King Ahaz was trying to lead the southern kingdom through these dark days. But Ahaz faced a lot of challenges. You see, the southern kingdom was threatened by the very real invasion of an alliance between the northern kingdom and the country and the, and the kingdom or the country of Syria. They had together formed an alliance and they were planning on attacking the southern kingdom. They were planning on laying siege to its lead, uh, leading city, its capital city of Jerusalem, and ultimately uh, destroying that kingdom. In spite of these threats, God sends his prophet Isaiah with a word from the Lord to Ahaz. And the word of the Lord that, that Isaiah has for Ahaz is that even though it looks dark, even though it looks like the northern kingdom and this alliance with Syria is going to be successful and it's going to overthrow you, you don't need to fear because it's not going to happen. That's what, that's what Ahaz is told we hear in uh, chapter 7. But in spite of hearing this word from the Lord through the prophet Isaiah that this alliance is going to fail, Ahaz completely disregards it and believes that he has to find his own way forward, that he has to find his own way out. And so it doesn't take much imagination to see him in his throne room, his, his situation room, if you will. And he is there surrounded by his cabinet. He is there surrounded by his advisors. And they are desperately trying to weigh all the options to figure out how they're going to get out of this. Imagine all the people that are in that room. He's got foreign policy people. He's got financial people in the room. He may have his joint chiefs of staff there in the room. The military might uh, advising him on the decisions that they ought to make. And, and the main decisions are, are they going to be able to protect their own borders? Or do they need to form an alliance of their own? And the alliance that they were considering forming 
was an alliance with the superpower of that day, Assyria. So there's a difference between Syria and Assyria, even though they've got very similar names. And they were considering forming an alliance with Assyria. And, and Ahaz is going so far in the council that he's trying to get to try to find his own way forward that not only does he have his conventional staff around him, but he also brings in, the Bible tells us, mediums and necromancers. Okay, so he's going to go the conventional and the non-conventional wisdom route. So he's got mediums, people who claim to be able to uh, communicate with the spirit world, and he's got necromancers who claim to be able to communicate with the dead, and he is leaving no stone unturned so that they can make the right decision. It was a difficult thing to consider making an alliance with Syria because the, the Assyrian king was a ruthless leader. In fact, we've got historical artifacts that date all the way back to the period which have him bragging about filling a gorge with the dead of the people that he had conquered. Stacks on stacks on stacks of bodies that this man uh, of lives that this man had taken in his conquest. Ahaz ultimately decided to ink a deal with Assyria rather than hear the word of the Lord that had been clearly given to him. He did not believe that they were strong enough to protect their own borders, and so he emptied both the temple treasury and the, tre and the government treasury, almost sent them everything they had so that they could be protected by Assyria. And he did succeed in the short term, protecting themselves from the threat that God had already said they were protected from, but he failed in the long term. Because what he had done was weakened the dynasty there and the kingship there so that they were now under the influence of a foreign power like Assyria, which eventually is going to completely destroy the northern kingdom. Okay, so, so these are dark days. And I, I tell you that story so you have an idea of what the historical situation is that's going on. And you can even put yourself in that room as you think with fear, but how are we going to protect ourselves? Because the people were not turning to God, because the leadership was not turning to God, but were instead turning to every possible thing but God, their financial resources, the spirit world, their advisors, everything else, at the end of chapter 8 in Isaiah, it characterizes the people as dwelling in thick darkness. This is, a, this is a dark time period in their history. But then we get to chapter 9. And the tone of chapter 9 completely flips. Chapter 9 looks past their current situation, past the thick darkness that they find themselves in, and it looks forward to a situation in better days because it tells us that one day this thick darkness is going to be pierced by light. And this future hope that Isaiah speaks, he prophesies about the future, this, this future hope is expressed in a prophetic poem that we've already read today, but that we're going to read again. It's found in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 to 7. 
And so if you're there with us in Isaiah chapter 9, please, if you would, turn your attention to verse 2. Because the Word of God says this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light is shown. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's a ray of hope, that's a ray of light that's piercing the thick darkness that the people found themselves in. And and this prophetic poem tells us that this light, which is one day going to pierce this darkness, is going to multiply the nation. It's going to increase its joy. This light is going to mean the end of war because a child is coming. A son is going to be given, and that son is going to be a king. Now, Isaiah is announcing the arrival. This this ray of light is not for the present moment. He's announcing the arrival of a king who's going to come several centuries later. But this coming king is clear from this prophetic poem is not going to just be a return to business as usual. It's not going to be a merely good king. The king who is coming is going to be no ordinary king. And we know this coming king is not going to be an ordinary king because of the four terms that Isaiah uses to describe this child. This child is going to be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Now without any unpacking at all, you can tell just on the very surface of those names that are being used for this child, that something unusual is being promised here. This is not business as usual. There's something special about this child who's coming. And so what I'd like to do this month is take the time to savor each one of these four names. Rather than thinking about each one of these names in the same talk, I want us to to spread it out over the course of the month so that each time we gather together, we savor these names of the coming child. We'll do that Sunday by Sunday until we come to 
uh, the uh, Twas the Night Before, the Night Before, the Night Before Christmas. There's a little advertisement for you for our Christmas Eve service that happens earlier. On that service, on a Thursday night, we'll be considering that last title, Prince of Peace. And then we'll be gathering together on Sunday morning to, to wrap up with verse 7 of this prophetic poem. But for the rest of the time this morning, I want us to think about the first name that he shall be called. And the first name that he shall be called is Wonderful Counselor. When we hear the phrase Wonderful Counselor, I think that we may be tempted to think about this descriptor in uh, too much in personal terms. We may be tempted to think that this title means Great Therapist. And while I'm thankful for the work of good therapists, and I'm thankful for the work that Jesus does in our own personal lives, that's not the focus of what is being discussed here with this, ter- this phrase, wonderful counselor. When Isaiah uses the term counselor, the word that he's using there points to an advisor. So the picture that we ought to have And what makes this so significant is is the picture we ought to have in our minds is a king surrounded by advisors trying to find a way forward. This is why this is relevant in in the first place. Because Ahaz is in that exact situation, trying to find a way forward, a way out of this mess, a way to protect our borders, a way to make our people safe and prosperous and all those things. And he's got his counselors around him trying to help him chart a way. And it's into that situation that the Bible promises there is a coming king who is himself going to be one of those counselors. Now that we don't have kings in our system of government, our president does have a cabinet of counselors and advisors, right? Whenever whenever the administration is considering foreign policy of some kind, whether they make good decisions or bad ones, those decisions are not made by one single person, at least they're not supposed to be. There are a variety of people in a president's cabinet. There's legal counsel, there's, the, there's their own party council. Let's, let's make sure that we don't make a decision that shoots us in the foot in the next election. You've got economic counselors measuring the economic impact this decision will make. You've got military counselors, uh, uh, at foreign policy experts, people who are, 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 are experts in various pockets of the world that speak those languages and are familiar with what's going on in them. You have all of these things going on to determine what is in what course of action is in the best interests of a nation. And every nation is trying to figure those things out. Ahaz had his advisors who were trying to help him think through what alliances were going to be most effective in securing their borders. And here's the thing. The fate of the nation can literally hang in the balance based on the quality of the advisors, right? I mean, we know that from our own foreign policy. We've made good foreign policy decisions, and we've made some really bad foreign policy decisions throughout the years. And all of that rides, in some respects, on the kind of counsel, the guiding wisdom, the prevailing wisdom of what goes into those decisions. 
The point I'm trying to make is your advisors can make or break you. Let me give you an illustration of this. There's this story in the Old Testament in the book of 2 Samuel that features as a main character a counselor named Ahithophel. And some of you may have heard of Ahithophel before, but it's hard to say Ahithophel over and over again. So I'm going to say a variety of variations of Ahithophel, and you're just going to have to translate it in your mind and recognize the guy can't speak. We'll, get, we'll cut him a break. But in this story, Ahithophel plays a pivotal role. And I don't have time to bring you all the way up to speed on what's happening, but I can tell you this. David, this is during the monarchy of King David... King David is at odds with his son and prince, Absalom, because of a variety of things that have happened that we won't go into right now. But they are so much at odds that Absalom has been exiled from the nation. Absalom doesn't even get to live in his own zip code. He's exiled into another nation. He and David are not on speaking terms, and this goes on for a period of years. And after a period of years, there are various people lobbying to have Absalom return home. And so David finally relents and allows Absalom to come out of exile and back home to the nation. But David still doesn't speak to his son. So it's basically like Absalom's out of exile, but he's still in exile even in his own nation because his father won't even recognize him or speak to him. And that's when Absalom decides to do something about it. Absalom starts sitting, the Bible tells us, in the city gate. The city gate was, a, was kind of like small claims court, I guess. So you'd come to the city gate with your, with your claim or your complaint, and there would be people who could, who could adjudicate that claim and, 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 and meet out whatever, whatever uh, uh, objective needed to be meted out. And Absalom kind of seated himself at the city gate, and his people came with their problems, he would say, man, do I wish I could help the people. If only you had a king that helped you, like me. And Absalom begins to curry favor with the people over time, and he ends up currying so much favor with the people that he's able to take a group of those people to another city, and he is anointed as king. Okay, so what we have here is Absalom mounting a coup against David's rule. And one of the very first acts of Absalom is to send for David's prized counselor, Ahithophel. And Ahithophel gets the invitation to join this new regime, and he sees an opportunity. He sees the writing on the wall, and he flips. He flips from David's cabinet to Absalom's cabinet. And and this is significant because of the reputation Ahithophel had. 2 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 23 says, Now in those days the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. 
So you can see why Absalom would make this as a strategic move. If he can land David's prized counselor, David's prized advisor into his own administration, this is going to bolster his ability to take over the throne. And when Ahithophel answered the call, David sees the writing on the wall and realizes the life of, of himself and his family and others are in danger and they make a run for it out of the city. Now, one of the first challenges then that Absalom faces as he takes control of the machinery of government is, what am I going to do to firm up my power? And one of the problems that he faces is David's still alive, and David's a fighter. He's an older man, but if you've read the Bible, David did his fair amount of fighting, and he's not a guy you want to mess with. And so he goes to his advisors and asks them the question, what should we do? And Ahithophel speaks up, the prized counselor, the one who speaks the word as if it's the word of the Lord. And Ahithophel says, go after him right now while they're weak. If you give them time to organize and regroup and strategize, you are not going to be able to overcome them. But David had a guy on the inside. And that guy's name is Hushai. And Hushai knows that Ahithophel, as was his custom, has given the right advice. So he chooses to give the exact opposite advice in hopes to frustrate that counsel. And so Hushai steps forward and says, Absalom, you go after King David right now. It's going to be like, it's going to be like getting between a mother bear and her cubs in a field. Okay? They're going to fight from a place of desperation. You don't want a piece of that right now. We should wait. Absalom ultimately chooses the counsel of Hushai rather than Ahithophel. See, I told you I can't do it. Rather than, I'm going to get past the story soon. I want to keep saying Ahithophel. Absalom sides against Ahithophel. And that turns out to be the undoing of this takeover. Because David, in that time, organizes, launches a counterattack. Absalom is killed and that offensive. And David is able to take back the throne. I'm telling you that story to give you an example, a real Bible example, a counselor can make or break a king and a nation's destiny. And one of the first names that Isaiah uses to describe this coming king is counselor. Now, Isaiah refers to this coming child as a wonderful counselor. And again, we need to make sure we understand this other word properly. When, when, when Isaiah says that he's going to be a wonderful counselor, he does not mean that he's going to be a really, 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 really good counselor, though he is. He means something even more than that. The Hebrew word that's used here, that's translated in our English Bibles as wonderful, is a word that's used around 13 times in the Old Testament. 
on 12 of those occasions, that word is used to describe God. And when it's used to describe God, it is used to describe God's wondrous acts. And one of the, as an example of one of the ways it's used to describe God's wondrous acts is when the people are delivered from slavery in Egypt and they walk across the Red Sea on dry land, they're experiencing a miraculous, or as the Old Testament puts it, a wonderful, wondrous act of God, a, a divine, miraculous act of God. So what's being said here when Isaiah says that the name of the coming child is a king who's going to be a wonderful counselor, he's saying that he's going to be one who gives divine counsel. In 2 Samuel 16, we saw that the counsel of Ahithophel was as if one had consulted the very word of God. What Isaiah is telling us is that this king is not going to be in need of advisors. This coming king is not going to assemble an all-star team of the best and brightest legal counsel, financial people, economics people, battle people, foreign policy people, and all the other kinds of policy makers and strategists that you might want to surround yourself with. He doesn't need any of that because in consulting him, it is not as if one had consulted the word of God, but he will be to consult the very word of God. Can you see, after me explaining it that way, why this prophetic word would have, would have pierced that darkness with a ray of hope? Ahaz is sitting in his, his throne room right now, surrounded by people who have no earthly idea how to move forward and how to protect themselves and how to be safe. They don't know if they have enough money to buy out. They don't know if they have the firepower to protect. They don't know about the effect of long, long-term effect of making alliances is going to have on them. They're looking for a way forward, but those are dark days. And Isaiah uses these dark days to look far into the future to a day when God's people would have a far better king than King Ahaz. A king who would have no need for a cabinet of advisors because he himself would be a wonderful divine counselor who infallibly knows the way forward. That's what Isaiah is promising. Now, in the New Testament, when the child that Isaiah had prophesied about was born, Matthew, one of Jesus' biographers in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, biographies of Jesus. Matthew has the first one that's in our English Bibles. Matthew directly connects the ministry of Jesus with this passage in Isaiah 9, this prophetic poem. In case there's any doubt about who this son is, if there, in case there's any doubt about who this child is going to be king is, Matthew draws a direct connection in chapter 4 to Isaiah 9. If you, uh, you can look on the screen behind me or you can read it uh, with me. Matthew chapter 4, verse 13. The Bible, speaking of Jesus, says, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, 
in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. What Matthew is telling us is that what Isaiah promised has happened. And those verses conclude, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The New Testament makes it clear in no uncertain terms, that Jesus is the child, the son who, has been, uh, his son who would be given, the one who is going to sit on the throne of David. And what is the message that this divine counselor, what is the message that this wonderful counselor preaches about the kingdom that has come? One of the very first things he has to say about the kingdom that has come, one of the very first directions that he gives us is repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's here. All of us, whether you have been born into the most devout Christian family that you can think of, or whether you have been born into the most pagan family that you can think of, whether you have walked with Jesus for as long as you can remember in your life, or whether you have run from Jesus for so many years, every single one of us, without exception, has been born into the kingdom of darkness. That's what the Bible tells us. And all of us are contributing members to the kingdom of darkness because of our sin. Now, praise God that we are not all as bad as we could be. If we were all as bad as we could be, it would be be an unlivable hell. So we are not as bad as we could be, but all of us are contributing members to the kingdom of darkness because even the best of us, the Bible says, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But when Jesus came... He made it clear that we could become citizens, members of a different kingdom. That kingdom is referred to in a variety of ways in the New Testament, but one of the ways it is spoken of is the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his dear son. And the way that we find ourselves moving out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his dear son, the kingdom of light, the path to that new kingdom is, in the words of Jesus, repentance. To believe that Jesus is the promised king, promised to us in Isaiah 9. To believe that he is what the Bible promised and who he says he is. And then to respond in faith and repentance to the message that he preached. To realize that because I am a member of the kingdom of darkness, I am a sinner separated from God. And my only hope to be moved out of this thick darkness in which we find ourselves is to repent of my contributions to it and to be washed 
in the precious blood of Christ. Repentance is acknowledging your sin, confessing your sin, and receiving the forgiveness that Christ the King freely offers. And friend, let me say to you today, if the Spirit is working in your heart right now to reveal to you in this moment that you are a card-carrying member of the kingdom of darkness, that hear the words of Jesus, the gracious words of Jesus this morning, repent, for the kingdom is here. And Jesus promises that if you will repent and believe the good news, you will immediately be given a new passport into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of his dear son whom he loves. Let me also give a word of hope to those who are God's people this morning. Many Christians today are feeling uneasy, I think. Many Christians are living with a sense of fear. You're not, we're not facing an alliance between the northern kingdom and Syria. Okay, so that's, that's not the kind of thing we're facing. But many Christians are uneasy and feel threatened even by the cultural and political movements of our current day. Many Christians are are feeling threatened and uneasy because it seems like their their voice in the public square is, is at best muted and at worst canceled. So, like Ahaz, we are looking for a way out. We are looking for a way forward. We're looking for safety, sometimes desperately clawing to regain power and cultural clout. And here is where we might be a little bit like Ahaz. In the face of the looming alliance between the northern kingdom and Syria, while Ahaz is busy at work trying desperately to figure out how to move forward, how to protect themselves, what they're going to do, God has already told them that it's going to be okay, and that this alliance against them is not going to succeed. And it wasn't like, it wasn't subtle. He sent a prophet that not only told him, but said, ask for me any sign to prove it. And Ahaz is like, I don't do signs. And Isaiah says, tell you what, I'll give you one anyway. Okay, so there's nothing subtle about the promise that God has given him that they're, that they're going to be okay, and yet they're living as if this isn't true. So Ahaz is desperate to find a way forward on his own, and he's willing to go so far as to make all sorts of pagan alliances to protect themselves. 
He is willing to consult with mediums. He is willing to consult with necromancers. He is willing to empty his temple treasury to get a pagan nation to come and protect them because he doesn't think his God can. Okay. So in the face of our fears, we too, like Ahaz, have a word from the Lord. A very clear word from the Lord. And that clear word from the Lord is about the nature of Jesus' kingdom. Jesus said in John chapter 18 and verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, we could throw hands right now, we could pull out our battle gear right now, if my kingdom is of this world, they would have fought for me that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But I'll say it again, just to make it, sure for, make it clear for the people in the back, my kingdom is not of this world. So we have this New Testament mystery of a kingdom that is here, growing every day. The king is present. Citizens are being added. And yet, clearly, we are not experiencing the fullness of that kingdom. We're not experiencing the fullness of everything that Jesus has promised when he one day takes the throne in its fullness. And in the face of our own adversity, in the face of a decrease in power or a decrease in influence, some of us are tempted to forget that word from Jesus, that his kingdom is not of this world. We've been living in the reality that we, we, know that, we know that's true. But maybe we can build it here. Maybe we can get pretty close. And then when that myth comes under threat, like Ahaz, we are tempted to find our own way forward and our own way out. We are tempted, Christian people are tempted like Ahaz, to make unholy alliances, to score a victory for the kingdom of light by joining our cart to the kingdom of darkness. Now you say, I wanted a Christmas sermon today. <laughs> well, you know what? So did I. And then I started reading the Bible. But let me just give you an example of what I mean by, by this. I'm not going to name names. People will probably know this. Uh, so, some people will probably know this. But there is a Senate seat up for grabs in another state. And the person that's running for that Senate seat is running in, in, on an anti-abortion platform. And stuff has come to light that this person has been involved in an abortion in some way, allegedly. I am not 
a political guy. If you've talked to me very long, you'll, you'll very soon know that. So my point is not to render a verdict on that situation. My point is to tell you something that people are saying about that situation. I read a person who said, at the end of the day, I don't care whether he's a hypocrite about this issue or not. And here's the reason why. Winning is the virtue. Winning is the virtue. I don't care whether it's true or not. They made a joke. I don't care if he aborts a thousand or something endangered bald eagles. I want a seat in the Senate. I would like to think that that sort of thing would not resonate with Christian people. But I'm afraid I'm wrong. I believe that there are thousands of Christians who would say, Amen. And in doing so, we're just following the path of Ahaz. Merry Christmas. Some of you are going to get coal in my stocking. We are tempted as believers to make alliances with the kingdom of darkness. We are tempted to compromise our principles to look the other way so that for the greater good, so I can have my status, so I can have my influence back. But did you know that there is a hope available to us that does not require compromise or unholy alliances with the kingdom of darkness? It's a return to what Jesus said. He said, my kingdom is not of this World, which means you and I don't have to shoulder the burden of building a brick-and-mortar kingdom. He's going to get it done. It's going to happen. It's absolutely for certain going to happen. And so we, we participate in the political process as best we can. We, are good, we should be good stewards with our votes and with our strategies and with our citizenship. But we do not stoop to unholy alliances to bring about what God has already promised he'll give us. Win, lose, or draw, God's kingdom is not in the least threatened by this cultural moment. I mean, you got to know that. It's like a mustard seed. And it's always growing in ways that, that don't seem obvious. And it's gaining momentum. And it's gaining strength. And its citizens are increasing. And one day the king has promised that there is going to be no end to the increase of his government and of his peace. He is going to reign and rule and truth and righteousness and justice and all the things that we all want. So here's the thing, you don't need to find the way forward. 
as if Jesus had not already spoken. We have a king who has come who is a wonderful counselor. And he already has charted the way. Let's pray. Lord, we know that we live in times that are dark. Every time we flip on the news, talk radio, that fire of fear gets stoked. And I pray that you would help us as Christian people to follow Jesus to live recognizably as citizens of the kingdom of your dear son rather than citizens of the kingdom of darkness. I pray that you would help us to steward the lives, citizenship, and opportunities that you've given us well. But Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come. And we pray, whether we feel like we are winning losing or drawing, that we would be planted on a deeper faith that is absolutely certain that that tiny mustard seed is growing, that, it is, that its roots are spreading, that any day now, the king will come. If there is someone here this morning who has never repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus, I pray that this would be the morning they are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your dear son. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.